I'm wondering uh, this morning how you are praying during these days. What, what's the content of your prayers during these days? What do you most desire? I hear lots of folks expressing the sentiment that they just wish things could get back to normal. And I've been wondering what defines normal? At some level, normal is not having to think about wearing a mask, not having to worry that certain products won't be available in the markets or stores, uh, being able to resume family gatherings and being able to get together with friends, feeling comfortable about going out to eat again, returning to normal work and play cycles. For some, the desire to return to normal might just be a little more intense. Uh, the ability to return to a job or to get a new job with a steady, normal paycheck, or the ability to visit and support elderly parents and friends. Maybe it's a return to health if sickness has invaded our home. Maybe normal is just losing the fear that every human interaction I have has the potential to cause my death. Gaining a sense of relative security in my life. People around us have experienced this crisis in many different ways. Some of us have been marginally affected. Others have been catastrophically affected. And so I wonder what it is we're praying during these days. What's the content of our prayers? And so thinking about that, I, I decided to walk back through Scripture and look for prayers offered by biblical characters in times of great stress or crisis. And after listening to them, I'd like to share a few of them with you. The first one is some 2,500 years old, and it's the prayer of Daniel in the ninth chapter, starting in the fourth verse. I'm not going to read the entire prayer, but uh, major excerpts from it. Again, this is Daniel 9, starting in verse 4. Here's Daniel's prayer. Ah, Lord, great and awesome God, keeping covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. We have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Righteousness is on your side, O Lord, but open shame as at this day falls on us, the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Open shame, O Lord, falls on us, our kings, our officials, and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, for we have rebelled against him, and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by following his laws, which he set before us by his servants, the prophets. This is verse 16. O Lord, in view of all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath, we pray, turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain. 
Because of our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors, Jerusalem and your people have become a disgrace among all our neighbors. Now therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. And for your own sake, Lord, let your face shine upon your desolated sanctuary. Incline your ear, O my God, and hear. Open your eyes and look at our desolation and the city that bears your name. We do not present our supplication before you on the ground of our own, un, of our own righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercy. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and act, and do not delay. For your own sake, O oh my God, because your city and your people bear your name. Daniel and the Israelites he's describing are exiled in Babylon. Darius is the Persian king at the time, so transition and leadership has happened since the beginning of the exile. We're getting near the end of captivity at this point. Daniel, we know, has the habit of praying three times a day. And I suspect that this particular prayer isn't a prayer that some secretary overheard and wrote down, but is a prayer that Daniel writes that comprises the thought of his frequently repeated prayer, that this is a, a, a summary of his praying. This is the gist of Daniel's prayers over a period of time. And that period of time was marked by isolation, by insecurity, by prejudice, by frustration, not to mention a great sense of loss. The Hebrew people had a proud heritage that had been crushed. They had lost their homes, they had lost their land, their wealth, their national identity, their leaders. Everything that marked them as God's chosen people had been lost. I think it's almost impossible for us to get into the minds of those people to understand their sense of loss. But I think maybe a way we could get closer to it would be if we tried to put our feet into the shoes of Syrian refugees today, folks who have been driven out of their homelands, who have lost everything, uh, who have been persecuted for their religion. You'd, you'd have to find some type of experience like that to understand what these folks feel, felt like. And remember, this is almost 70 years into that experience. So this isn't an experience that happened last week. Uh, you know what the three months of COVID quarantine felt like. This is almost 70 years into this loss. So consider the burden and the frustration and the anxiety of all of that. We assume that nothing like this can ever happen to us, right? But I wonder how, how true is that really? I mean, how did Israel get into this place in the beginning, you know the story, cycles of disobedience to God, cycles of disobedience to God. And, and it's not just Israel's national refusal to follow Torah that gets Israel into trouble. It's not just that. It's, it's the callous pursuit of wealth and power and personal security that gets them there. Personal greed becomes rampant in Israel. 
Oppressing people and taking advantage of others is commonplace, even to the point of calling out the priests for those kinds of things. Ignoring the poor and those in need has become commonplace in Israel. Bribery of public officials is mentioned as one of the many sins of Israel. This self-absorbed pursuit of comfort and wealth without regard for how it impacts others is a significant problem for Torah. Are you familiar with the laws that surround the year of Jubilee in the book of Leviticus? In Leviticus, we're told that every seventh year is a Sabbath year in Israel. And every seventh seven year is a year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, on that year, Hebrew slaves, those have been sold into indentured servitude, and prisoners are freed, debts were forgiven, land was returned to its hereditary owners, and everyone got a clean slate to start over again. So if your father or grandfather had made a mess of the family business, their errors didn't compound and affect the family for countless generations. Everyone starts back to square one again. And the very notion that a year of Jubilee was coming forced you to think about what would happen on the year of Jubilee long before it ever came. And it made you think about, well, what will the new relationships be like in terms of influence and power and security and wealth? Because things are going to reset at the year of Jubilee. So if you're planning a field this year that's going to return to a different owner in a few years, well, you might want to cultivate not only the field, but your relationship with the person who will be the new owner, right? Because it's going to have an impact on how you move forward. If you treat the past owner harshly, your prospects for business in the future might be injured. Imagine if something like this were enforced today. Think of the chaos. Think of the hope that would blossom in the hearts of some and the despair that would erupt in the hearts of others. This would be chaotic. When I think of Jubilee today, I guess I think of those companies that very purposefully buck the trend of corporate greed. There are plenty of companies out there that make a reasonable profit, but think just as much about their employees as they do the profit margin. They understand the significance of providing good quality jobs. They understand the importance of a well-cared-for staff. They do not place profit margin ahead of the way they care for their employees. But there are many others who have made their careers by taking over successful businesses, cutting jobs, injuring communities, just to show a quick financial gain in the ledger books and provide a nice dividend for stockholders. Little regard for the families who are shipwrecked. No concern for the children who are now unsupported. When we lose the soul of the nation to a profit margin, we're in trouble. In these days of racial unrest, 
And in these days of reconsidering our American history and story, we're forced to wrestle with things even beyond that. We're forced to wrestle with our treatment of indigenous people. We're forced to wrestle with the ugly narrative of slavery in both North and South. We're forced to wrestle with, with our treatment of Japanese Americans in World War II, and the list could go on and on and on. If we're prepared to be really honest, we have to look at the way that some of our Christian forefathers misrepresented the faith in inquisitions and crusades, in abuses and greed, in supporting demeaning policies with scripture, using the very word of God that was meant to bring liberty to humanity, to enslave humanity. It seems to me that though we did a great job as a faith in providing hospitals and, and colleges and orphanages, we also provided plenty of wolves dressed in sheep's clothing. And, and we have to acknowledge that. So when we begin to pray for a return to normal, what is it we're praying for? Are we praying for those systems and processes that just keep us comfortable? Or should we be praying more broadly, more compassionately, with greater vision and grander hope? Should we be praying for new systems that usher in a greater era of equality and justice for all? Do we really desire a more perfect union in this nation? All the way to the point of beginning to usher in the kingdom of God. And I think this is where Daniel's prayer becomes really significant. Daniel, the righteous one, doesn't need to confess sin, presumably. I mean, we've read the first eight chapters of Daniel. We know the testimony of, of his life. We know the courageous stand he takes for God. We've thread the story of, of the dietary gamble that he makes. We've, we've seen the example of the children in the fiery furnace. We've, we've read all those stories of Daniel, Daniel the righteous one, right? And here he is, bowed low before Almighty God, confessing sin. Why is he doing this? But hear these words in verse 5 again. We have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and your ordinances. Did Daniel do that? I mean, Daniel was a boy when Israel's taken into captivity. Surely it wasn't him who had committed the sin. I mean, listen to the prayer. You sent the prophets and we didn't listen. That's what he's praying. Notice the humility of the prayer. He doesn't for a moment boast of any of Israel's accomplishments. There's no mention of the conquest of Canaan. We don't hear a word about Jericho and the walls. There's no mention of the temple. He doesn't cite David or Solomon. He doesn't mention anything that Israel's done in a positive light. He only ever references the acts of God on their behalf. But there is no self-defense here. There's no attempt to make excuses for how things worked out. It's not like, well, God, if you could remember our circumstances, you'd understand why we... There's none of that. There's only one petition here. Turn away from your wrath, and because of your great mercy, 
Give us one more chance to do this right. Give us one more chance. You hear it in the verses? Incline your ear, O oh my God, and hear. Open your eyes and look at our desolation. We do not present our supplication before you on the ground of our own righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercies. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. Listen, act, do not delay. Can you hear Daniel saying, we don't deserve a second chance? We don't deserve the opportunity to put things right. We don't ask for anything based on what we have done or how good we feel about ourselves or what, how exalted our opinion of ourselves is. We simply, humbly beseech you to give us a second chance to build a better society, to care for the poor and desolate among us, to support the weak and the dying, to deal honestly and not greedily with our neighbors. Somehow, in the middle of this pandemic, we have got to figure out a way to struggle to the place where we can see the big picture again and pray for what we really need. A second chance to build something better to not repeat the mistakes of the past, to develop a sense of responsibility for the unfortunate, for our neighbor, to remember, as we're taught in the parable of Jesus in the Good Samaritan, that we are our brother's keepers. I think, I think these times have, have stripped away our social interactions in such significant ways that it is for many of us in any event, made us understand perhaps a little more how relying, how much we do rely on one another. Um, this is probably a little more true for extroverted people than introverted people, but the reality is when we're separated, we experience loneliness, and we have a need for one another. But imagine how much that loneliness is multiplied when you add all the other stresses and difficulties and circumstances that pile on, all the other losses, all the other things we're grieving, when we don't even have the basic support of one another to comfort us in these times. And so we have to look beyond just our own inconvenience in prayer. We've got to ask God, would you help us see more broadly would you help us build something new? Would you help us, Lord, to make sure that we are not in the same kinds of cycles and patterns of disobedience that Israel was in, that led them to the place where Daniel is? Because if we're candid, our history isn't much better than the history of Israel's. And we don't go to God praying, standing on any righteousness of our own either. All we can do is go humbly with humility and say, Lord, give us a second chance 
to be more mindful of our neighbor. To be more mindful of what it means to be just and equitable in our community, in our schools, in our social systems. Lord, put the needs of my neighbor on my heart so that I don't thrive without them. Lord, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I think that's the prayer. This will be hard. But I walk back to another prayer, a prayer from Moses that's recorded in Exodus 33. Israel's in chaos. You know where this prayer is happening from. This is happening from the wilderness, okay? Another time of national crisis. This is what Moses prays in Exodus 33, starting in verse 3. Now, if I have found favor in your sight, show me your ways so that I may know you and find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And Moses said to him, if your presence will not go, do not carry us up from here. If we're not going to go in the company of the Holy Spirit, we're in difficult shape already. But our confidence is in the same thing that Daniel's confidence was in, the great mercies of our Heavenly Father. He is merciful. He does love us. He does want to see his kingdom come in our time and in our days and through our actions and because of our witness. And if we will work together, we can believe that God will give us the second chance that we're praying for to make things different, to make things better than they've ever been. So I would encourage you, whatever else you're praying, Add this to your daily prayer, that God will go with us into the future that he has in mind for us. And that in future will be informed by the prayer Jesus taught us to pray, that his kingdom would come and his will would be done here on earth. Heavenly Father, hear our prayer. Give us a second chance. We don't ask because of our own righteousness, because our righteousness is as filthy rags. But we ask because of your great mercy, because of your steadfast love, which reaches to all generations. Help us, Lord, go with us from this place that we might be your people and you might be our God. We pray in your name, Lord Christ. Amen. As important as it is to get a big picture of the work of God so that we can pray into it, practically, this happens, this transformation happens one neighbor at a time, right? We can hope for grand things, but what matters is actions. And so one neighbor at a time, one relationship at a time, that's where the kingdom of God comes, right? 
And now may God the Father equip you with every good thing for doing his will. To his glory, now and forever. Amen.